Welcome to the 10th episode of Coronavirus The Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group, and was responsible for the care of over 5 million Kaiser Permanente members on both the East and West Coast. He is a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode, along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com. Robbie. Each week, we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should listeners know about the week that was? Jeremy, as much as it sounds like an oxymoron, when it comes to the current pandemic, it has become routine. That doesn't mean that COVID-19 isn't just as problematic and its consequences just as tragic. It's just that what is happening has become predictable and repetitive. The number of new cases continues to be around 30,000 each day, and as a result, the number of weekly deaths remain in the range of 10,000. Both curves are essentially flat. Hospitals have sufficient capacity, although not enough protective equipment for all. In many states, everyone wears masks in stores, and restaurants are increasingly open, at least for takeout service. At the same time, resistance to the shelter at home and social distancing expectations seem to be growing. I'm on the East Coast these days and close to a beach. Saturday was beautiful with temperatures in the 70s. People didn't seem to be behaving very differently than they did a year ago. Maybe the groups were a few feet farther apart, but I saw crowds of graduating high school students crammed together in groups of eight to 10. Walking in the neighborhood, I see people who, a month ago, refused to be around anyone, and now are on porches sipping wine and beer, even if slightly farther apart from each other. People understand that this easing of social distancing means that there will be a rise in infections, but they seem to be accepting that this is the best of two bad options. The question is whether they will regret this decision, and that will depend on whether the other actions they are taking including getting tested for infection, self-isolating when positive, consistently wearing a mask, avoiding close contact with people, and protecting those at greatest risks will be done by enough people to offset the increased transmission as a result of the easing of social distancing restrictions. Health officials remain concerned, as they should be, but the reality is becoming clearer. We are unlikely to eliminate this virus until there is either an effective vaccine or broad herd immunity, and that will be at least a year from now. Jeremy, a listener wrote to me this week and asked, what's the difference between isolation and quarantine? The answer, at least from the epidemiologic lexicon, is that isolation is the term used when separating an infected person from others while quarantine applies to separating people who've been exposed to someone with the virus from others, 
As such, we isolate people who test positive for the coronavirus and we quarantine their contacts. The word quarantine itself has a fascinating history. It can be traced back to 14th century Venice. There, during the plague, ships had to sit in the harbor at anchor for 40 days before the sailors could come ashore. And the Italian word for 40? Quarenta, the basis for the English word quarantine. Robbie, I've heard that Sweden chose to imply only minimal restrictions on businesses and to keep their schools open. Uh, what has been the result and what can we learn? Jeremy, we know a moderate amount from their experience, although as is true for so much of the coronavirus pandemic, what the data means depends on the lens through which you view it. Sweden has a population of around 10 million, and they've had approximately 3,400 deaths or 34 deaths per thousand people. In contrast, the U.S. has had 25 deaths per thousand people. So you could say that their approach hasn't worked very well. And yet at the same time, 25% of the population has had the virus, which means they could be almost halfway to the percentage of people needed for herd immunity. In contrast, the U.S. is under 5%. Through that lens, their approach has been a great success. It all goes back to what we discussed in prior episodes. You can't evaluate an outcome until you know the strategy you are pursuing. If you think that a virus is coming this fall, you might decide to hunker down and define and measure success as the fewest number of people who become sick. On the other hand, if your data vaccine will be available in fewer than 18 months, then your goal is to keep your society as normal as possible, protect the most vulnerable, and think of a vaccine as a means of avoiding next year's version, similar to what we do for the flu vaccine. From a strategy perspective, both approaches could be reasonable, and you would pick between them based on the information and data you obtained from the vaccine manufacturers. The worst outcome, and unfortunately the one I fear for our country, would be to shut up businesses and schools and yet see the number of people getting sick continue to go up and reach herd immunity just as the vaccine becomes available. That combination would result in our nation experiencing the exact same number of deaths, but maximal societal damage. If that occurs, we will have made the sacrifice, but still pay the price a lose-lose proposition. We've talked about South Korea and the great job the country has done containing the virus. Last week, though, they had to once again close down businesses. What happened? Jeremy, this is a powerful example of how the coronavirus spreads. The government of South Korea responded quickly to COVID-19 in early February with broad testing and mandatory isolation of anyone who was positive. It also implemented aggressive tracing of contacts, including doing so through cell phone and social media data and records. As a result, the number of people with the virus was contained and the viral incidence has remained extremely low and manageable across their nation. However, one infected person visited five nightclubs and bars in a single evening and infected more than 50 individuals. 
If between that night and the identification and transmission, each of these newly infected people came in contact with 40 others, we're talking about 2,000 individuals, all stemming from one infected person. As a result of this incident, the total number of coronavirus cases in South Korea soared to the highest one-day increase in over a month. When an entire nation's numbers can be knocked out of kilter by a single person, that's an ever-present risk. Last week, we provided answers to listeners' questions and provided a glimpse into the process by which our nation would begin to reopen. The feedback was incredible. Uh, This week, we continue to focus on what's on people's mind. Robbie, it's spring. What does the new normal look like? If it's next spring, schools and businesses are open, but everyone's wearing a mask. There are restrictions, albeit looser, on the number of people who can congregate at any given time. After a year of canceled sports and playing without fans, the regular baseball season and basketball playoffs have begun. There are no new treatments for the coronavirus, although some medications have had a small beneficial impact for those most critically ill. A vaccine remains 6 to 12 months away. Unemployment is back to single digits, but double what it was before the pandemic began. Economic measures are improving, but slower than people had hoped. Many aspects of the virus, including its impact on the vascular system, along with the pulmonary, have been studied. Despite a deeper understanding, dozens of questions remain. Robbie, I'm hearing people warn about the danger of the current pandemic and the social distancing requirements, as well as the economic impact that it's having on people's mental health. Uh, How worried should we be? Jeremy, your concern is well-founded. Approximately a third of Americans already report worsening mental health and emotional well-being. A national crisis hotline reported a 78% increase in concerns about domestic violence and a 44% increase in concerns about sexual abuse. Most worrisome, the demographic with the biggest increase was 18 to 35-year-olds, the age bracket experiencing the most negative impact from the restrictions, both, as you point out, socially and economically. A fear of healthcare professionals is that the current acute problems will become chronic, leading to depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, We saw that after tragedies like Hurricane Katrina in Louisiana. Many students and young workers feel as though they've lost a year of their lives and they will never recover the time. It's why we need social distancing, not social isolation. We need to create opportunities for people to expand their skills, not contract them. There are opportunities for which we never have time in our lives, such as learning a computer skill, mastering a foreign language, or updating our resume. The challenge I find when I talk to people is that they lack energy to do these things, and despite the opportunities, find themselves relatively unproductive, 
Frankly, I'm very concerned about people's mental health, particularly if the current situation extends past the summer to the end of 2020. As an extremely respected healthcare and business expert, what are the three things that annoy or frustrate you the most about how this crisis is being handled, covered in the media, perceived by the population, etc.? Jeremy, the first is that our nation has no strategy. As an example, parents want to know if schools will reopen in September. Granted, we may not have all the facts today that we will need, but what will be the criteria? We should be able to tell parents that on a specific date, we will decide based on these particular pieces of information. We often forget how closely linked schools are to the ability of parents to work. Number two, people are talking about actions our nation needs to take as though they are solutions when they are merely first steps. Testing is needed, but how will it be used? Could be applied to monitor and reduce the possibility of overwhelming our hospitals. It could be used to advise individuals who aren't sure if they're infected and don't want to visit others, particularly elderly loved ones. It could be used as a tool leading to strict isolation and quarantine. Could be a requirement to go to work, school, or even out of the house. All of these are possible, but each is very different and generates a variety of medical, social, political, and civil liberties concerns. Americans deserve a clear understanding of what leaders are thinking and planning, and today they don't have it. Number three, the media keeps reporting the number of infected people, the number of deaths, and the number of jobs lost as though they are a surprise. All were predictable, and so far, very consistent with what we did predict and what we would have expected. Until there's a vaccine or herd immunity, infections and deaths will rise every week, and both will go up more rapidly as we ease social distancing. Unemployment will stay at record levels as long as states prohibit businesses from being open. It often feels to me as though the way we approach data on the coronavirus pandemic is analogous to lying in bed and throwing a ball at the ceiling each morning and then acting surprised when it falls to the ground rather than staying in the air. Gravity should not be a headline, but when it comes to COVID-19, it continues to be. Ravi, on the other hand, what are the three things you find the most hope in? Jeremy, the first thing to me is oral testing. It's not getting the amount of press that I believe that it deserves, but this is really something that could be a game changer for a disease that can infect easily before symptoms. If we had broad availability of oral testing, it would lead to a powerful strategy for the nation. We could reduce the risk of infection without shuttering people's lives and livelihoods. Theoretically, we could test everyone each day or maybe every other day to see if they had the virus. Today, that process is painful. It requires skilled personnel with protective equipment to obtain effective nasal swabs. A saliva test can be done by all of us from our home, somewhat equivalent to taking our temperature. Today, that test exists 
but it's expensive and takes too long to process the saliva. The technology could improve rapidly and the price could plummet. Oral testing would be faster and easier than developing a vaccine or cure, although it would be simply a stopgap measure until the vaccine was manufactured, distributed, and people were protected. The second thing that I find hopeful is the response of healthcare providers and first responders to this crisis. They have demonstrated mission and purpose, and they've inspired all of us to be more generous people. I hope that we can continue that even after the coronavirus pandemic has become controlled. Finally, I'm hopeful about the spirit of our nation. People have put up with sheltering at home and social distancing better than I would have imagined. It hasn't been perfect, and patience is wearing thin. But we have flattened the curve and avoided the horrific possibility of people dying not just from the virus, but from the inability of hospitals to care for them. As a result, I believe our nation is far better positioned today than even a month ago. It seems as though every week we hear something new about this coronavirus. Uh, when will we have all the answers? Jeremy, I wish I could give you an answer. But every time I think we're getting closer, a new wrinkle pops up. In our show two weeks ago, we talked about how children seem well-protected from getting the typical version of COVID-19 and risking death. And that remains true. To date, the majority of children who come down with COVID-19 and need hospital care have underlying lung disease or some other type of immunocompromised status. However, over the past week, there have been reports of a few children developing a multi-system inflammatory condition similar to what is called Kawasaki syndrome. These children appear to have a hyper-inflammatory response, leading to multi-organ failure and shock. Obviously, if this illness strikes a large number of otherwise healthy young children, it will impact decisions on whether schools can open in the fall. It's simply too soon to know and similarly, even though the most recent study on antibodies has shown that at least for the most important one, IgG, people consistently produce them. Debate continues to swirl, however, on how protective these antibodies will be and for how long they will last. Once again, it's hard to believe that we still don't know, but that's the reality. Finally, we have to figure out the impact warmer weather will have on the virus. It's looking slightly optimistic, but we still don't have a firm answer to this question. I would have thought these types of questions and multiple others would be well answered by this point in the pandemic. But this virus is trickier than the other coronaviruses like MERS and SARS. Overall, we know the big pieces about the coronavirus relative to its spread and lethality. It's all the small ones that remain elusive, but very important small ones. And then, of course, there are things about the future we can't know until they've been tested, particularly around 
current vaccine development. Listeners have to remember, there's a huge distance between a company reporting it has a vaccine in trials and proving it's effective and safe. It's why vaccine development and manufacturing normally takes years, not months. In the interim, before there's a vaccine, everyone has to make their own decisions about the risks they're willing to take. The chances of someone who is young and healthy being infected with the virus and becoming critically ill remains low. The risk of even coming down with the virus is also minimal, assuming those around us get tested and isolated if positive. The places we go require people to wear masks. We keep six-foot social distancing, and we wash our hands frequently, being sure to keep them away from our mouth, nose, and eyes. But there is always risk, even for those who are young. At the same time, what we know is that the risks for those who are elderly with multiple chronic diseases remains extremely high. And I believe our nation has not put enough energy into maximizing protection for this very vulnerable population. Jeremy, as a patient, if you had a medical problem that wasn't life-threatening, but was annoying and maybe slightly painful, like a hernia, how would you decide when to have it repaired? It'd probably depend a lot on how bad the pain was, but honestly, I think I'd probably wait for the pandemic to be over. Um, my reasoning is twofold. One, I don't want to risk getting coronavirus at a hospital. Um, I'm not worried about dying from it per se, but why risk it? Um, I also wouldn't want to risk getting something and then exposing it to the people I care about. Um, if the if the procedure were to take place in an ambulatory surgery center or outpatient setting, and then I could recover at home and do follow-ups uh, via telehealth, I'd be much, much, much more comfortable with it. Um, obviously, they're not going to be treating coronavirus patients at an uh, ambulatory surgery center. Um, the second part of my reasoning is, the economy is pretty scary right now. I personally have not been affected a lot yet, but that does not mean that I won't be in the future. Um, I need to be responsible with my money, as I think everybody should be right now. Uh, perhaps maybe if some sort of discount was offered or something, maybe I would consider it. Uh, that being said, you know I have a, a pretty high deductible on my insurance, which causes many people to avoid care even when there isn't a pandemic. Jeremy, business leaders have had to alter their supply chain in this pandemic and shift it from in-person to completely online. You're a sales and marketing expert. From your perspective, will this be a change that will last even when we have a vaccine? I have a feeling that the longer things last in their current state, the likelihood people will stay reliant on completely online goes up. Um, obviously, some things will get back to normal or, or kind of go back to the way they were. Like, I'm, I'm sure we're still going to have big in-person conferences and things like that um, eventually. Uh, I've seen a lot of places evolving and adapting to this, and I've seen others struggling. Um, I really feel like now is the time for organizations to really focus on doubling down on their online presence and credibility 
focus on establishing themselves as a trusted brand, do things to keep existing clients happy while simultaneously understanding their hardship. From the sales perspective, it may be especially difficult to get new clients in the door. That being said, now is the time to focus on building new relationships and strengthening existing ones without being uh, pushy and just spitting out your company's sales pitch. Prospective clients want vendors that admit they do not have all the answers and are willing to be creative to get through the economic hardship with them. I'll say again, you know, now is the time to really focus on building relationships without being pushy, um, even if they don't uh, lead to an immediate sale or payout. Uh, and, I, and I would say, too, you know, companies that are relying on the old ways of sales and marketing and don't get creative and changing with the times are likely in for some really, really uh, difficult times ahead. Robbie, the House just passed a $3 trillion bailout bill. What's the fate and what difference does it make? This bill to me is a square peg in a round hole. Without a strategic context, there's no way to either support or oppose it. And my best guess is not much will happen for a while. I don't believe that Congress should be passing, whether in the House or the Senate, coronavirus-related legislation along party lines. This is a national emergency. Elected officials need to work together. My problem with the bill isn't the content per se, but the fact that it is being passed without a strategic plan. Specifically, was first asked, how long are we planning to fill the economic holes created by the business restrictions that have been put in place? Jeremy, you and I made this point when the original $2.2 trillion package was passed. If the plan is to continue to fill in the gaps until there is a vaccine, we told listeners that the first bill was really an $8 to $10 trillion package, not a 2.2. Is this new bill the next step in that direction? And if so, what is the strategic plan for repayment? It's not a question of right and wrong answers. It's having a clear plan for the future. It's one thing for elected officials to allocate money at the federal level. It's another for them to tell people in advance how the promises will be funded and the added repayment dollars generated. This is what I believe Americans want. They want the truth. They want the facts. And right now what they're getting are simply promises and stopgap measures. A key part of this recently passed House bill is giving money to states and local governments. By law, they can't have a deficit, and having the federal government that can have a deficit fund them makes sense. They've been hard hit by the precipitous decline in tax revenue. But what's the strategy related to the total? Is it designed to make states whole, fill in a portion of their deficit, fund new services in the context of COVID-19? Similarly, the legislation extends benefits for the unemployed. But what's the future strategy? Is it to open all businesses by the end of the year and thereby minimize the need for another package after this one? Or is it just another interim plan with another $3 trillion on the congressional docket? as the year 2021 starts to approach. 
The bill is a reflection of what's happening today in so many areas relative to the coronavirus. Without a strategy, every decision is short-term. What's most worrisome to me is that we seem once again to be engaging in proposing legislation that is political, not medical or economic. And I worry that this tendency will accelerate on both sides of the aisle as the upcoming November presidential and congressional elections draw near, exactly when the flu season will begin to hit Americans on top of COVID-19. I have my own thoughts on what our nation's strategy should be. But I can't tell you that it's better than anyone else's. Without knowing when a vaccine will be here, and if the antibodies people develop after the infection are effective protection against reinfection, every strategy involves huge assumptions. But what I can tell you and listeners with confidence is that no strategy is a recipe for disaster. Our nation can and must do better. Without that, I think we will trip over our own feet as we continue to try to manage a virus that is simply not going to disappear. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, visit our contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.